Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we're going to explore parapsychology and the soul. My guest is Doug Marmon. This will be my fifth interview with Doug. He's a practitioner of soul travel. He is the author of The Whole Truth, The Spiritual Legacy of Paul Twitchell, It Is What It Is, The Personal Discourses of Rumi, The Hidden Teachings of Rumi, Lenses of Perception, A Surprising New Look at the Origin of Life, the Laws of Nature and Our Universe, The Silent Questions, A Spiritual Odyssey, and The Spiritual Flow of Life and the Science of Catalysts, which will also be part of our discussion today. This is, of course, an internet interview, and I'll be switching over now to the internet video. Welcome again, Doug. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. You're an experienced soul traveler that uh, means that you, you've had many, many excursions into, I'll call them super sensible planes. I think you break it down into the causal plane, the astral plane, the mental plane, uh, et, et, et cetera. Uh, I, I think you have a, a unique system for doing that. Uh, but it gives you an interesting perspective on, on the phenomenon of parapsychology. I think for parapsychologists in general, one of the uh, essential characteristics is that we're looking for manifestations on the physical plane that can be verified empirically. So I should think that overlaps to some degree with your work in soul travel. Yeah, I think there is definitely some overlap. It's it's not the physical side that I spend my most of my time with, but uh, it definitely is obviously a part of life. So we're all involved in the physical here. Yeah. One of the areas that's really intriguing to me, and I think to you as well, is is the idea of being out of your body, getting sometimes pulled out of the body, sometimes getting stuck halfway in and halfway out of the body. Uh, the, these are things you can experience as a soul traveler that might be very relevant to a parapsychologist. Yeah, and that, that that's exactly what I been looking forward to talking about because I think some of the experiences I've had or insights that come from uh, my experiences and studies uh, might be relevant to the field of parapsychology. Uh, well, let's talk about, for example, your experience uh, of leaving your body. What is that like for you experientially? It varies. So there's all kinds of ranges of experiences. One of the my first early experiences was very much just like it sounds. I, I sat down to do a technique that Paul Twitchell had talked about in one of his books, and I thought, well, what the heck, I'll try it and see if, if this does anything. And uh, I immediately started feeling like I was in a totally different um, reality. I, had, I was not no longer in the body. And I was, I could look around, I could move around, I could fly around. 
And then I thought, oh, if I'm in this state, I should be able to go wherever I want. And I went to see a friend and verified, recorded, kind of kept, kept track of some of the things that were happening then and then came back. So that was when I came out of that experience. It seemed more dreamlike when I was coming out, but when it began, it seemed very much like I was, I was somewhere else, but it didn't seem completely physical. There were things about what I was seeing weren't quite the same. The feeling wasn't the same, but I was still perceiving the physical world. So anyway, that was one experience, but then it can vary a lot. Uh, I mean, I might be in the middle of something and suddenly something pulls me on the inner. Some inner state is something's going on and I'm suddenly involved with what's going on, lose track of what's happening around me, not completely, but largely. And uh, sometimes my wife says it's like, you know, Earth to Mars, Earth to Mars, you know, <laughs> trying to call me back. And it takes a while to get adjusted because uh, it's going from one state of consciousness, one reality to another. You know, when you talk about being um, in the physical world, but it's slightly different, uh, reminds me of, um, for example, a report by uh, Robert Monroe in his book, Journeys Out of the Body, where he was repeatedly able to visit a realm that was very much like the earth plane, but there were some subtle differences. For example, they had vehicles like automobiles, but instead of being longer than they were wide, in this realm, these vehicles were wider than they were long. And a another similar example to me comes from the thoughtography of Ted Sirios, who was studied by the psychiatrist Jewel Eisenbud, and he had the ability to project mental images onto Polaroid film. And uh, in one instance, he was given a target in a sealed envelope, and the target was a picture of an old opera house in, in Colorado, uh, about a hundred years old, a brick building. And the image that appeared on the Polaroid film was of this opera house, but there were subtle differences. The windows were in different locations and uh, just small changes like that. And I, it sounds similar to your description uh, of, uh, I think we even described it in greater detail in a previous interview of, of some of your early out-of-body experiences, visiting a girlfriend, where going to her house where you didn't know, uh, actually, you'd never been there physically, but you then went and found it. Yeah, yeah. And I've had many experiences where I saw something on the inner, but it was like a mirror image reversed from what was it should have been in the physical. I've seen that a number of times. Uh, slight, like you say, slight alterations, slight differences. You know it's the same place, but there, it, it is not quite the same um, Im image, yes. So what would you think accounts for those subtle changes that occur? Well, it's, it's that you're not actually looking at the physical. You're looking at the astral plane. And the astral plane, uh, has a, a, a duplicate of the physical. The astral plane is so close in many ways to the physical. It's like a hand inside a glove. 
And so everything that happens on the physical, it is, there's an aspect of it happening on the astral. And it's not the reverse, it's not true. Uh, some of the things that happen physically, uh, they, you can have, they're not completely part of the astral. So it's always, but whatever, all the, all the forces, all the things that are driving things, everything that's motivating everything starts first on the inner and then comes through to the outer from my experience. That's what I've seen. It, it sort of reminds me of the hermetic saying, as above, so below. Exactly. Exactly. I think they were absolutely right. And so the astral, when you're seeing on the astral, is not exactly the same as the physical. There are differences. And sometimes they show up when you're comparing the two. That's fascinating. Now, I uh, recall one of the characteristics that you've ascribed to the astral plane, and it's also, I think, important in terms of your book, Lenses of Perception, uh, is the idea that the, the dominant feature of the astral plane uh, is that people form communities and groupings uh, together. I have, for example, I can even show it, a, a watercolor painting by Malsby Kimball, who was an anthroposophist, uh, part of the spiritual school founded by Rudolf Steiner. And it's a picture of master and disciples all gathered together on the astral plane. Each community is totally different. It's like a universe of its own in many ways. If you, you don't walk from one community to another. You have to switch your attention and then you're there. Because there's no like, it's not a road that leads from one to the other. They're completely separate, like multiple world, world theory, you know, where you have multiple worlds. And, and so in that realm, what is r real is what is accepted as real by the community. You're reminding me of a, uh, a movie that was made called No Solar. It, uh, it was a Brazilian film based on a novel produced by the Brazilian trance medium Chico Xavier. Uh, and it's the description of the astral plane from the point of view of a resident, a, a doctor who died and was living there. And No Solar, I think, translates as, as to our city. And they describe a, an actual city with uh, uh, parks and uh, administrative buildings buildings and a very definite organization, hospitals, and uh, that this existed in the astral plane. It seems to be uh, sort of what you're getting at. One of the things I found interesting when I first started exploring this was uh, I wanted to see, we, we have a physical body, but if we have a physical body, we also have our in, these inner bodies of each body on each of the planes. So we have an astral body. For a lot of people, when they have a physical life, their inner bodies go to sleep in a sense. Uh, they're not much active. But uh, what I was curious, I, I, as I began to awaken in my astral life while I was still having a physical life, I began to get, get curious what other people looked like their homes or their place looked like when they were in a physical. So I would go visit just to see what they were, they were like on their inner. And I, one of the things I spotted was quite interesting is if I walked into the home of somebody I knew well, on the wall were the paintings that absolutely captured their personality. 
in a way that showed me a whole other depth to them. I could, you could see what was most important in their thoughts, what was really important in their life, and it showed up in their physical life too. But it was an, a thing that you would not see physically unless you were like sensitive to how they were feeling about things or really knew them well. But it really showed up on the astral. It was right there. It was out in the open, plain, everybody to see. So these were... Uh people who were alive, who uh, also had a, a residence on the astral plane? Is that what you're suggesting? They, they, they may not have been fully awake there, but they were still, they had some presence there. This might be true of anybody, uh, in, in other words. Anybody engaged in parapsychology research might actually have a, a a residence, a home of some sort on the astral plane of which they may not even be aware. Yes, absolutely. And some people actually are aware of higher levels too. They may have a life on the causal plane or on the mental plane, and even be aware in the spirit on the soul, the soul plane. I mean, all these different levels you can have. A, a life, and, a rea and, a, and you can be aware of them or not. Now, I know in uh, some traditions, uh, it's said that there are seven different planes of existence. Other traditions have different numbers. But I guess the idea is that when you're, we're talking about the soul, there, there are different levels uh, that you could think of. You have to be really careful. I mean, I uh, I've gotten very used to reading all these accounts for others, and I always set aside things like when they say, oh, I'm on the seventh plane. I have to always go down to what do they mean by the seventh plane? Because on the astral world, there's more than seven planes just on the astral world. Like at the very lowest level, you have people who are living in a place that's very close to what you call suffering because of a way of learning through that suffering. Others are in a very creative place, artistic environment. It's, it's a higher place up. Some are closer to the very tops of the astral plane where they can actually see the way the astral plane works and how it's governed and how uh, energy flows through and out to the other different levels. But that's just all. So the number of planes is can vary. The question is, what does somebody mean by where they are coming from? That's That's the interesting part. When we think of uh, the afterlife, the realm of the deceased, what the Tibetans call the bardo planes, would you equate that with the astral plane? It is uh, a state that's kind of halfway between the physical and the astral. Uh, and so when they, what they're talking about there is kind of like a transition period where people can stay for a while before they're really ready to move into the astral plane. Sometimes some people need that time for adjustment because they're not ready to leave the physical life. There was too much of a shock or something like this. Uh, they don't understand what's going on. And, and, and so there can be a transition state. Um, but then eventually they move into the astral plane and pick up their life there. So, so yes, there are other states like that that are kind of transition period places, yes. In our earlier conversations, particularly our first conversation, when you described having an encounter with what 
seem to you to be the space, the very same space intelligences that uh, Ted Owens reported in in my book. I describe it in the, in the PK Man, uh, the higher intelligence beings that seem to be responsible for his many demonstrations of ostensible psychokinetic powers. And I think you describe them as interacting from the causal plane. Yes. So that's the the next dimension beyond the astral plane. And, and just like the relationship between the astral and the physical, the causal plane is like in, in, internal to everything that's happening on the astral. Um, but uh, on the causal plane, the, the focus is different. It's not communities so much. It's, it, it, you, you were much more reminded of the classical ideas of like the throne of God, where you were in this a very, very um, uh, spiritual place which everyone is aware of God, this, this being, this, this God-like, and you feel this divineness, and that you can feel a sense of divineness in everything that happens there, right? And so one of the things that I found there is these influences, which I, I would call them the uh, overlords. So things that will happen on the astral plane and even on the physical are sometimes you get the sense like there's something guiding this, something leading this, something behind all of this. And those are the overlords. And each of the species of animals have a overlord in a sense. And each of the worlds have an overlord. So there, there is this kind of way that all the sense on that, in that world, they would say, all of the worlds are part of this one creation, you see. So it's almost like a creator sense of, but it's not the highest plane. That's just the way it is there. These overlords might be equated with uh, deities. Not so much deities, but more like archetypal influences. So if you think about an archetype that could influence, you know, the classical idea of the Greek gods, like they, 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 each of the gods represented something different, right? Wisdom or, uh, you know, war, you know, a god of war, a god of love, and all these things. Well, that's more closer, gets you a closer sense uh, of how these overlords lead things and guide things in a certain area or a certain way. With regard to parapsychology, if if somebody, let's say they're engaging in a remote viewing experiment, what they want to do is obtain information about a physical target. It might be thousands of miles away. And I'm guessing that uh, while that information is accessible to them, you might say at the soul level, there are all these other influences that you've described on the astral plane, the causal plane. We haven't even gotten to the mental plane yet, uh, that, that may affect their ability to, uh, accurately describe the uh, physical target in the remote viewing experiment. No question about it. There's, there's things that can prevent a person from seeing some things in that way. Uh, and, and there might be reasons for it. In fact, there always is reasons when a person has a really difficult time. It, it, they might be very good at it and they say, I just can't get there. I can't see it. I can't, don't know what it is. Something is blocking it for a reason. It's always for a reason. And it might be for their own spiritual purpose. It, it, may be, it would be not good for them 
or it might not be good for some information to be coming out into the world about something. <clears throat> so there are cases where that can happen. You know, I uh, once asked my friend Gary Zukov, who, who wrote a book called The Seed of the Soul. He's not a soul traveler, I don't think, like you are, but he, he writes extensively many books about the soul. And uh, I had a conversation with him once about the use of remote viewing in financial forecasting, which has been uh, an interest of parapsychologists. There have been a number of successful uh, experiments of that sort reported. And Gary responded to me when I asked him if he thought it uh, was possible. He said, when you attempt to do something like that, the results that you get will be dependent upon your karma, the individual karma of, of the people engaged in that activity. I agree with him. And I thought I'll add another aspect to that, and that is oftentimes when those experiments are started, they'll have very good results in the beginning. But as they go on, the, exper the results peter off. And there's a reason for that, because uh, the, the value of in the beginning is learning, discovering, wow, this is really working. But then when you try to start trying to use it for your own personal gain or someone's personal gain, then it starts to close up because this is, that's being used for a, a very different purpose. And that's where the karma part runs out. If you try to get something for free, eventually you have to pay for it. Eventually you have to pay for everything that comes your way. And uh, so when people are trying to get something for free, the thing, everything starts to turn eventually. It might work for a while, but eventually it turns. And that's just the nature of the way the inner worlds work. I'm under the impression, to be honest with you, that a lot of parapsychologists are very interested in the data. Can we do this? How strong can the effect be? But it's a much more difficult thing to begin to examine the souls of all of the participants in, in a particular experiment and how the outcome of the experiment is going to be in some way conditioned by uh, not only the souls of the participants, but the the souls of the community of people who learn about the experiment and, and read about it uh, even years later. I had a very interesting experience with my father after he passed on that relates to what you're talking about. Uh, he himself was a uh, an engineer, worked on aircraft engines, and uh, uh, after he, he passed on, I was wanted to check up on him to see how he was doing. So I happened to, it, actually it came to me that it was something was going on that I needed to see him about. So uh, when I got there, I found he was in the middle of a discussion uh, with a community that he had been living in before he came into the physical world. And it was a community of scientists. And he had taken some kind of a vow that when he came into the physical world, he would be doing his best to raise his children so that they completely understood science and nothing else. So in a sense, the, this idea uh, was that science, for science to be done, you need to shut off these inner experiences, subjectiveness, things like that are not important. And he himself was a rather insensitive person, so it, it suited him 
well. Uh, he was a real doer, accomplished things, amazing what he could do. Uh, but he did have that influence on all the children. In fact, my brothers and sisters all ended up in the field of science in some way or another. But I early on, of course, broke out of that, went way beyond that because of my experiences. Well, he was being berated by these others that he had failed because of me. I was the example. You failed. You didn't. I said, hold on there. He, I said, he had no prayer of keeping me bottled up like that. It was not going to happen. I said, this comes from way, way beyond this world and what you're doing. And then I realized that they were surprised that I was there while I was still in the physical body. They were like stunned that I could be communicating with them. But also that what I was saying was something that they did not understand. And then it suddenly hit me. They were actually a part of this scientific uh, goal, this vision, to focus on the outer, on the outer aspects of things to help advance science. By, which would meant shutting off the inner parts of experiences. And I said to them, I said, are you aware that while you, what you're doing is keeping people in the dark in the physical world, that what you're trying to do is keep them in a dark, in a sense, in a spiritual sense? And they said, yes, but it's for a good purpose. And I said, well, are you aware that you are being kept in the dark just as they are? Because I could see on the causal plane the same thing was happening. There, here was the community on the astral plane, and they were part of this effort to help advance science, which it has advanced science. But they themselves did not know they were in the dark, and that got them thinking. <laughs> but the, the point I'm trying to get to is that these influences are happening from the inner to the outer. And these people who are involved... They're involved in these inner communities, and there's, they're being influenced by those things as well. When scientists get too close to looking at something, something like parapsychology, some of them are afraid of it because of this sense that they should not be looking at it. They should not be studying it. They, they don't know where that comes from, even. They're not even aware because they're not aware of the inner. So they have, they're, in a sense, in the dark. For some people, let's say they have a, a strong belief that anything associated with the paranormal is the rising tide of superstition. It's a phrase that I've heard many skeptics use, that they're actually operating unconsciously under the influence of some astral force that is uh, causing them. The, it's as if they've been hypnotized. Yes, yes. And that, now you're getting right to the whole point of lenses of perception. Because a, a lens of perception is not about beliefs. A lot of people think this comes down to belief, but it's not. It goes deep, deep into the subconscious. It's the way you see and understand things. And it, a lens is, emerges from the subconscious out of your own experiences. Now, scientists have to learn this lens of science that they have, how to eliminate their own inner feelings, their own subjective experiences. That's a pra you have to practice that. And But after the, you, you do this for years, that becomes a lens. And it starts to become more real than anything else for a lot of these people. So they have a hard time accepting something that does not fit in that lens. And this is one of the things that's... Every lens is limited. It has a limited scope, just like a regular 
physical lens. At the edges, it starts to get a little blurry. And it's only, you wouldn't use a microscope to look at the moon. And you wouldn't use a telescope to look at microbes. You know, so they each have an area of, of range where they're good and useful. So the, the lens that science uses is this third-person lens. It's where you're an outsider looking in as if you're a fly on the wall. So you have all these thousands of scientists or like thousands of flies on the wall studying the world and comparing. They want to be able to see something that others will agree. Everybody sees the same thing if they run the same tests. But none of that includes a subjective aspect. So this, in a sense, their first-person lens is pushed out of the way. But it gives them a feeling like they're, it's like a God's view of the world, like they're an outsider looking at the world, but they're missing so much. They don't realize that. And for example, that lens cannot see first-person perception. It can't see it. It's like it doesn't exist. But there's another aspect to this. And this is where I think it gets more interesting and that there's, besides the subjective and the ob objective, there's another lens, another major lens that gets overlooked by scientists and most everybody else, for that matter. Uh, and that is what I call the second-person lens. And that's when you are in a relationship, a personal relationship with another being. And uh, it could be a pet, it could be a friend, it could be a lover, uh, it could be a mother or a father or a sister or a brother. That relationship creates a space, you might say, a shared space between two beings that's private. It exists between them, and you can talk about it, but you can't actually, nobody else actually experiences it the same way between you. And that is neither objective, because outsiders can't see it, and it's not subjective because it's not just within your own experience. It's actually shared. It's actually something that exists between beings. So it's in another dimension, you might say. And in fact, that's exactly what it is. It's, a, it's in a sense, another dimension that influences the physical, the objective. And, and this is where the experience of entanglement comes from that we leads to things like telepathy and clairvoyance and remote viewing even, things like this, are tied to these kinds of relationships, these inner relationships, but they're real and they have a real effect. And this is where I think it could start to cross over and be measurable uh, because it has, it, the effects on the physical can be measured just like at the quantum level where entanglement exists, they can detect they can't actually see this, the objects in a state of entanglement. They can't see the entanglement, but they can show that these objects track each other. They, they, uh, they can run a test on one and miles away can test another, and they're always the tracking. They stay in sync with each other. Um, and that's the way entanglement works on the quantum level. Um, now, one of the things I think is really valuable about the lens of perception theory, which ties in all three of these lenses, the first person, second person, and third person, is that it, it shows, uh, it offers an explanation for how, let's say, telepathy and these things work in a way that can tie right back to quantum physics. And it overcomes the weakness of other theories that have happened. Um, 
Generally, when people try to tie consciousness into quantum theories, they use the observer effect. That's, that is when it, the way you observe or do not observe an experiment or measure or don't measure, it affects the results. Uh, and uh, so that has been tied back to the observer. But it's most physicists, in, in the early days, there was real concerns that maybe this is the observer of the experiment that's causing this. But most, uh, most physicists now discount that because they've set up experiments where the state, the situation where it's testing, what it's testing switches automatically and sometimes uh, in a random way. Uh, and they can take, track it back to how that setups change. And those, all those phenomena are still appear there. Even until, even when an observer of the experiment doesn't look at it until many days later after the whole experiment is done. So it's, even though you could say, well, okay, maybe they're influencing it backwards in time, but that gets, starts to get to become a stretch. Uh, but the way I involve it is not with the observer effect so much. The observer does have a sum effect, but it's all the particles. They also have uh, a, they're sentient. They have an aspect of consciousness to them. Those particles, when they're interacting, when they're observing each other, that's where the actual effects are most visible for the physicists. And that's where they see entanglement between particles. These particles form relationships just like we do. They're, they don't have as many degrees of freedom. They can't do things. They can't, they don't have brains or things like this. But they do form the same basic relationships. Now, one of the things that is most interesting about this theory that I have, which I go on and do, done a formal interpretation of quantum mechanics on this, called the lenses of perception interpretation of quantum mechanics, is that it makes a prediction, uh, an outrageous prediction. It says, if sentience is the cause of all these quantum effects at the quantum level, which from what I can see, it seems to be true, then it means that wherever we find sentience, we will find quantum effects. So we should see quantum effects happening between human beings, and in fact, any living organisms. And so these things like entanglement should, in fact, must be existing at the level, all those levels, or else the, the theory fails. In other words, one way of proving this theory wrong is you can't find all of the, all, I mean all, 100% of the quantum effects that we recognize at the quantum level. If we can't find them all existing at the level of between relationships between uh, living beings, organis organisms, human beings, animals, that sort of thing, then the theory is proven wrong. And so I've, that's where I've spent like five years tracking down to verify that all this stuff holds up. So it offers, offers a very valid theory for, in, for uh, telepathy, for uh, clairvoyance, ESP, and these sorts of things. Well, when you refer to quantum effects at the level of sentient beings, is that what you're talking about? Parapsychological phenomena? At, at the quantum level, it's mind-boggling, right? Physicists say, wow, this is like so unreal, nobody knows what is going on here. It just boggles the mind. Once you start saying, okay, these are the results of sentience, then you, now you take it to the uh, human level. Yes, 
it is it explains the parapsychological experiences, but also lots of other sorts of ordinary common things. For example, um, when 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 a husband and a wife get married and live live together for a long time, they naturally become entangled in a way that not doesn't shock anybody. It's not like so uh, uh, bizarre that somebody well that must have been. Uh, um, a, a perfect example of, of a telepathy, but yet they will finish each other's sentences. They oftentimes say a few words and they know exactly what they're talking about. They, people that know each other well have that same kind of sense. And it's, that's a normal experience. That normal experience is a part of entanglement. Earlier, we were talking about the astral plane and how the most fundamental feature, I think, is the way you phrased it, of the astral plane is uh, communities are formed. So that suggests uh, that the idea of a soul group, that uh, we come into this life because we're connected to certain other souls as a result, I suppose, of previous lives, and, and that we'll retain those connections after we die as well. Is, is that sort of what you're getting at? Yes, ex exactly. Like the, like the illustration with my father, uh, they, they we often will. Yes, soul groups is in fact a very common thing. Now, what's interesting about that is when soul first starts off with its earliest experiences, it's solely so tied to the soul group that it stays associated with that soul group for life, many lifetimes. As soul becomes more aware of its own differences, its own interests that are varying, it will start to step out and join other groups and, and discover different, different communities. And so eventually a person becomes, as they become more and more, uh, let's say, spiritually aware, they become very less and less attached to any group, and they feel free to leave and enter groups at will. Over and above the astral plane, that's what you described as the causal plane, the causal realm. And you talked about overlords in the causal realm. And I'm under the impression, especially when we're, we're talking about Teto and space intelligences who seem to manifest UFO appearances, power blackouts, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, that uh, at, at the causal realm exists the possibility of uh, manifesting things. And I suppose certainly the physical, but probably also than the astral. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and it happens a lot more on the astral. Uh, and it, it, But it's felt on the astral, people will feel like, wow, something's going on. So this is not normal. Something is special is happening. And on the physical, some people who are sensitive will sense the same thing. Well, this is not normal. This is a... Uh, I, I had an interesting experience when I was giving a talk uh, in, in, in Spokane, Washington. And, uh, and I, the weather was supposed to be spotless, no, no clouds, no, suddenly the storm came up. It was a huge storm. It was tied up to it. Uh, it just, it just became dark thunder clouds and things like this dramatic. And it, everybody noticed it. Everybody, this is not what anybody expected. This is something, uh, and, 
it has, I've noticed things like that happen sometimes when you're having a community of people coming together and they're talking about something that's beyond the physical. Sometimes things like that happen. What was interesting about that is one of the people that came to the, uh, the talk uh, was friends with a, a, a shaman who lived in that area. And uh, afterwards, he wanted to introduce me, so we went to visit him. And the shaman said to me, he said, did you notice the dance of the rain people this, this yesterday? And I got a chuckle out of the way he called it, the dance of the rain, but I knew what he was talking about. It was this, these inner beings that were creating this thunderstorm. And then suddenly he stopped and he looked at me. He said, did they do that because of you? And he suddenly was realizing that I was involved. And I, not all because I knew what I was talking about, because I was involved because of what I was involved with that brought this about. So yes, that, that's an example of what you're talking about. Well, over and above the causal, if I understand it correctly, you, you described the mental plane as even a higher plane than the causal. What is dramatically different about when you go from the causal plane to the uh, mental plane? In the causal plane, there's this sense of an absolute oneness with God. Absolute, you know, everything is divine and behind a divine plan. You go into the mental plane, and these are just names, mental, causal. I'm using names that theosophists have used, similar terms. But um, the, when you go into that mental plane, one of the things that you are struck by is everything becomes relative. Truth there is relative. And everything there is, in, everyone there in that is involved in some kind of activity, some accomplishing something. Uh, and but everything's being done, everything is relative in what's true. So it's not like there's no absolute sense of truth. Everything is relative to the situation, the, the project in, at hand, the whatever might be going on, and th that's the reality there. So quite different. Each of these planes, the reality is so different. And uh, it, it took me quite a while to learn to get to understand, okay, oh, this is... You'll see a lot of, on the, on the mental plane, you'll see these symbols showing up, stars, and, and for example, or moon shapes, or s symbols of different, different types, where, because symbols represent the relative truth of something. It's tie, this is related to that in some way. Uh, and it's, it's sim symbolism is all about that. Does the mental plane have uh, influence upon the causal plane, the way you've described the causal plane influencing the astral and the physical? Yes, it does. So everything that happens on the causal plane is influenced by the mental plane. However, the mental plane, there is no desire to try and get everything to operate the same way, right? Because it's all relative. So there is a great, more, much more sense of freedom that's given to the causal plane. But you'll see, uh, even in the causal plane, this relativity plays an important role in, in there. It's not, not everyone there is aware of it, but it's subtly having an influence all the time.
And you describe the entities that uh, are on the causal plane as the overlords. Are, are there also entities on the mental plane? Yes, there are. And there are, there's a, a lord of the mental plane, for example. And each of the planes has a lord. Uh, and But he is much more uh, distant, off, off a side. And there's, there's schools there that, that are teaching. In fact, uh, in fact, the whole idea of schools comes from the mental plane because they're, when they want to teach a certain thing, it often starts there. And that whole idea of the university or having a school system and being part of a school is very much something that happens there. Yes. Well, now this reminds me of a, a book that came out long ago in the 1960s by a psychiatrist, Shafia Karagula, uh, called Breakthrough to Creativity, in which she described one of her psychotherapy patients was going to a school every night in her dreams. And uh, at one point, the patient described uh, seeing a person she knew in this classroom. And the uh, person lived across the country and the other side of the country, but she contacted that person and learned that they were having similar dreams. I've run into that a number of cases where uh, people who are actually going to the same inner place have the same dreams or same experiences. Sometimes they'll write an article almost word for word. Uh, things like that can happen. Uh, it's, it's not always that the person copied them outwardly. Some independent things like that have definitely happened many times. Yeah. Um, I, I would like to bring a, a different, uh, my childhood, and one of the things that happened in my childhood had, had a big influence on this. And I think this will be interesting to parapsychologists. Um, I, when I was born, I had an older sister who was about a year and a half older than I was. But she was born with a number of uh, defects, one of which was she had a hole in her heart. She, her, her, her knees had not formed properly, so actually it turned out we walk, started walking at the same time, even though she was older than me by a year and a half. And uh, so she, one of the things that happened, uh, we became very, very close. Uh, and it was, there was a, a number of reasons for this. One of the things, I, I can still look at pictures of her today, and I see it, it's quite clear, she was only half in her body because of her physical problems. And uh, my, when my mom talks about her feeling sick or something, she said she never complained. She would just go off by herself. And I, and I said, yes, she would withdraw from the physical. Because I remember that. I remember that. And I had this feeling about her so strong that I often had a sense of what she was experiencing so much that I couldn't tell whether it was my experience or her experience. I, it, they got mixed up, like they became the same. And this is the state of entanglement. Entanglement is not, one of the things people misunderstand about it, it's not like they're just connected. They're entangled over a state. And entangled, there's always an entangled state that connects the thing, the, the people together. Um, and so in this case, when I was going through my early development from birth to the first year or two, 
One of the things that a child goes through is learning how to integrate into their body. They learn how to move their arms. They know that picking up a rattle is picking up something else, grabbing their toe. It's them. They're grabbing themselves. So they learn how to distinguish between what's them and what's not them. That takes experiences, lots of experiences and practice. And it takes after a year, they get a sense of that. Well, when you're going through that sort of integration experience with someone else side by side at the same time, like what happens with twins, they become entangled in those states because they're learning this stuff together. And this is what happened with my sister. She was not fully in her body. She had troubles integrating into her body. So we were, in a sense, learning that experience. And this is why we became so closely entangled. But it's different from the way most twins are. Most twins are entangled in a way that affects them in their physical embodiment, the way they're physically embodied. That's what's entangled. With my sister and I, it was what was half in and half out of the body. It was this state of being half in and half out. I was learning that from her, and she was learning from me how to be in the body, and we were, that was what we became entangled over. And this led to me having these experiences. I think it led to me later on being able to leave my body very easily and having this experience of being half in and half out. Um, but anyway, I was, I had this book on my nightstand for months. It was, it was a guy, Playfair is twin telepathy. And I wanted, been meaning to read it. I finally, a couple of weeks ago, picked it up. And, oh, wow, it was just great to read it because all these things he's talking about with twins is directly related to my experience. For example, one of the things he talks about is twin speak, where sometimes twins will learn to babble while they're learning to talk at the same time, and they start babbling in a way where they're actually communicating. It's like a different language. It's like their own language. Shared between them, no one else understands it. And one of the things he makes a comment on is, this looks like a clear case of telepathy. But it's hard to tell because they don't talk. They're not yet at the level where they can talk yet. So you can't ask them, uh, what they're th are they actually communicating? You can't actually tell for sure, right? Well, in this case with me and my sister, that was different. Because actually I started to learn to talk. I was babbling. She started babbling with me. My mom's listening to this and she goes, whoa, wait a minute. It like sounds like they're talking to each other. She says, she says, Janet, do you know what Doug is saying? And Janet goes, oh yeah. And she translated it into English, what I was saying. So there was a, there was a case now where you have it actually verified. In fact, that was what was happening. And it was no question that it was more closer telepathy that was making this happen, making it a, a possible than it was actual sounds and words. Um, the words eventually, we, they formed, they became a language in a sense, but it was really much more on the inner than it was on the outer. I often have the impression in normal conversation that that's what people are doing. I mean, like right now, uh, we're using words, and of course, there will be viewers, thousands of viewers later on who will hear these words, but our actual intention gets communicated, I think, maybe uh, 
you could call it a carrier wave or something. It, there is a telepathic component to normal speech, it seems to me. Right, exactly. And, and this is a case of entanglement. When people share an inner state together, and that's, it's, it's, so it's, it's actually, uh, there's no wave, there's no transmission, it's just you're sharing this space together, and it's, this space is outside of space-time. So that sharing can exist across, you can be thousands of miles away, it, it's still there, and you can still have these connections. And this is why he talks about these twins, twins seem to have this much stronger um, cases of telepathy and other experiences like this, but something happens to one twin and then, you know, can be thousands of miles away. The other twin suddenly is aware of it. And, and, and they often have the same state, like where they talk about, they could not tell the, themselves from their twins sometimes. And one of the other examples he gives in the book is some of the twins, their twin died. And they said, it's like half of me is gone. And, and that was one of the things. It's interesting. It was different for me because I was more about the inner and outer. It wasn't so much all outer, uh, an outer body experience, uh, it tied into the body, I should say. Uh, it was largely an inner thing. Well, when my sister died, when I was five years old, um, it, she was actually at the hospital. They were trying to operate her in her heart and she didn't make it. Um, and my, my parents were just absolutely just overwhelmed with grief. I mean, it, it was just, they could not stop crying. And for me, the experience was totally different because she was still with me. I was, she was still with me. So I, I go into her and I say, you don't need to cry. She's okay. She's fine. She's with me. I, I was trying to find words at five years old, trying to explain. And I could see they didn't understand what I'm saying. They say, oh, yes, yes, everything's fine. Everything's okay. And then they're crying, you know. And they clearly, the way they were crying, I could see she was not with them. They didn't. And I was trying to say, no, she's here. She's here. She's, but they didn't have any idea what I was talking about. So, but what happened is over time, after about a year, she left. And that was when I started having this feeling like, a part of me was missing. And for the rest of my life, I had this feeling I was looking for that experience again until I got old enough to I realize what I was doing. Looking for that experience in a relationship with others uh, to, to bring that back because I was missing that. I was missing that strong inner connection that was very close. Um, but so they, it's interesting how my experience varied from that, from traditional twins because theirs was much more in what they were entangled on the state they were entangled in was related to how they were integrating into their bodies together i think that's what explains that difference well i know you um also have talked about the idea of being half in and half out of your body as being associated with the experiences of uh, UFO contact and UFO abductions and maybe also sleep paralysis that uh, people uh, experience as a related phenomenon. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how that uh, came about for me was uh, I'd be in the, um, when Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, came out, was starting to get a lot of attention. I kept hearing about it. 
And I have to say what I thought, you know, aliens coming into somebody's room and taking them out back to a spaceship and all this kind of stuff, it, it struck me as strange. I go, I'm not so sure about this. But I got interested enough, I thought, well, I'll read the book. And uh, so when I read the book, the first thing that struck me was he was a really good writer. And he had experience writing. I could tell he had lots of good experience writing. And he knew all the classic skills of how to make something much more realistic and really communicate well. And he was really good at it. But I also sensed that there was something real behind what he was saying. And but the, what he was describing just didn't sound right. It didn't sound like what he was describing. And I was, I was trying to put my finger on it. I couldn't. So I put the book down and it kind of was in the back of my mind for a while. And then one day it suddenly hit me. Oh, I know what he's describing. He's describing that experience of being half out of the body. And I've had it a number of times. And in that state, you feel you're, you're, you can't move your body because you're actually out. So it's like your body is in a sleep state. And when your body is in a sleep state, you can have dreams, but basically your arms don't move, your legs don't move generally. Um, and so you're, you're, in a sense, you're like that state. And since you're half out, you can't get your body to move. You, you think you can get up and you, you can't move. So you feel paralyzed. And because you're on the astral plane, half out in the astral plane, everything that happens on the astral plane is if you start to have a fear, that fear becomes real. Now, let me, let me illustrate this because not everybody understands this. In a physical, if you're walking on a path and you see this thing, it looks like a snake, you have an immediate reaction. Snake, right? It goes on, it's automatic, and then you get a little closer, you see it's a stick, right? On the astral plane, if you have this experience of snake, it is always a snake. And it becomes a snake no matter what it was beforehand. <laughs> because it becomes manifest. That experience, that fear manifests itself. So it's natural to have a feeling also of a sense of presence when you're in this state of paralysis. You're in a state of uh, half out of the body. Your physical sense, physical body senses your inner self being there. And it feels like another being. But sometimes, and I found this to be happening also, when people have this experience uh, on a regular basis, and by the way, uh, it turns out that it is not that uncommon. Um, but people who have it on a regular basis, they'll often find that there's guides on the inner that'll come to help them learn something. So there is, sometimes is a physical being on the inner, and I had this as well, where there's an inner being there and pulled me or was pulling me to come all the way across, you know. But what I found was the in it when you're in a state like this and you're in a state where you're uh, half in and half out and you feel paralyzed and it's, it's a, the, the fears come up, it's very easy. You just push all the way through, just go all the way through. And when you're going all the way through, the feeling is like now you're the flying. Anybody who has a flying dream, that is a dream of being on the astral plane because that's exactly the feeling you get. Like you can fly there on the astral plane. And you, you have that feeling of being that sense of energy, that sense of freedom. Uh, is So that's what it's like. You feel in this state of paralysis, just push through and you are freed and you can look back and say, oh, that was all it was. And 
all that goes away. All the fears go away as soon as you realize that. Um, I've had this, uh, I, I, well, after I discovered this, I, I posted a, a thing about it on the internet. This is back in the year 2000 or something like this. Um, after I was piecing it all together and because I was curious about what other people thought and, and so I had some people write to me that they had had this experience and they wanted to thank me because they had been caught in this state and they, once they read what I said, they tried what I said and they got out of it. And it was just so easy, they said. They couldn't believe how easy it was. And once they did that, then the experiences stopped. They stopped having them. They no longer had them. And they really did not like being feeling trapped like, like they did. So it was, for them, it was a huge breakthrough in having that experience. Now, what happened was then a few years after this, um, Susan Blackmore published a article on this. And she says, you know, uh, alien abduction or sleep paralysis. You know, it was an article, something like that, titled something like that. And she and went, gone and done this research and other people had doing research similar on sleep paralysis and she pointed out the amazing number of similarities uh, first of all that up to 40 to 50 percent of the population have this sleep paralysis once or twice in a lifetime three to six percent of the people have it on a regular basis they have it uh, 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 continually um, when the person has it, they feel paralyzed. They see lights, hear sounds that are obviously otherworldly type lights and sounds. There's a sense of a presence. They sometimes feel like somebody's grabbing them or pushing them or sitting on their chest and all these sorts of things. So um, it's, it's natural to see how that could lead to somebody thinking, especially if they had read books about alien abduction that this was maybe an, an abduction experience. And, and then, then being on the astral plane, it would naturally develop into exactly that kind of an experience on the astral plane. Uh, so they would have actually go through that experience because that's the way it manifests there. It sounds as if you're suggesting that th this idea of being half in, half out of the body is a correlation of sleep paralysis as well as the uh, re many reports of abduction experiences. Uh, some of these abductees talk about uh, having been pregnant and having the pregnancy removed and uh, all, even Whitley Strieber talks about some sort of a, an anal uh, exam that took place that left him permanently injured uh, physically, uh, suggesting that it's it's not just a uh, uh, a paralysis that there are some real manifestations, physical uh, side effects of this experience. Uh, how, how do you relate to that? Those things can happen because what happens on the astral can be reflected on the physical. It's often that's the case. So in the case of somebody being pregnant, they could actually go through the experience, feel the pregnancy, all the things that go through it, maybe even their period stops. So they're confirming that they're actually pregnant, but then it disappears. It doesn't come to manifest. This is a great case of having an astral pregnancy, but not fully physical, but yet has an effect on the physical. 
I'm now I'm thinking of a, a case of a, an abduction occurred in Pascagoula, Mississippi, back in the 1970s. You had two guys, they were out fishing. They weren't asleep in their beds. And uh, they both report, you know, being abducted and taken aboard some sort of a, a, a UFO under that circumstance. Uh, it, it suggests th that uh, that wouldn't fit in so neatly to being half in and half out of your body, I don't think. First of all, I don't ever hope to say it explains everything. I, I, to me, it was like I could see it. It was consistent with a lot of what people say. Yeah. But um, in terms of how that might work, uh, when I had this experience with the space intelligences, and you talked about uh, Ted Owens being able to basically working with them, predict when there would be UFO sightings. That's right. So that right. is clearly a sign that's coming from the inner first, right? And I, I do think that is possible occasionally. I, don't, I think it's much rarer than the abduction, most of the abduction experiences that people have, especially at, most of them are at nighttime. But it's possible that these things from the inner come through also to the outer. Now, in a case like that, you might have these men fishing have this, in a sense, come through from the inner, and they may have naturally gone into a state half out of their body. In other words, it could have been provoked from the inner. Some people maybe are sensitive to this, and it may have occurred that it's a possibility. And that's why when they woke up, probably, my guess is what their, where the experience was, after it was over, they woke up because they realized they had been asleep or something like that. Is that what happened? Well, I don't have the actual story fresh in my mind, but I think they were kind of returned to where they were fishing. And uh, <laughs> then they, they reported, they both uh, reported the experience to the local sheriff. It felt to them like a physical abduction had just taken place. And, and the fact that they shared it together made it far more real for them, right? Because they both had it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have uh, had a couple experiences with seeing UFOs, one of which was really when I was very young but by myself, but the other one was with others. And it was interesting because um, there was uh, uh, two couples. We were together having dinner. We were kind of, kind of looking out the back. Uh, it was quite a panoramic view out the back, uh, backyard, uh, after dinner, and I was getting a little bit late, but it wasn't that dark. <clears throat> I was approaching dusk, you might say. And suddenly, I saw this light coming across the scene, and the way it was moving, it was not an ordinary plane. It was clearly, it was, it was, not, it, was it looked like really strange the way it was moving. I go, look. And um, the uh, Roger, who was with me, and his wife, and my wife, we were looking, and Roger says, I, I don't see what you're... And I, said, and I said, just go like this. And he said, oh, yeah, I see it. And uh, Roz, who's Roger's wife, and Karen, my wife, they're both looking and not seeing it. And I'm saying, it's like there. It's going like... Can't see it. They can't see it. And then it went like three-quarters away across, and Roger said, okay, it's disappeared. I said, no, no, I can still see it. You know? So there's a case where something is coming through from the inner. It can be manifested, but it's obviously inner awareness.
makes perhaps me aware of seeing that, more capable of seeing that. There's some manifestation coming through on the physical, but others, some couldn't see it and some could. Some events are even photographed, uh, and yet other witnesses who are right there don't see it. Yes, which shows that this is coming through from the inner largely, even though it can leave an effect on the outer. Doug Marmon, this has been a fascinating conversation, as always. Uh, I really think that you have a a perspective on these phenomena that should give many parapsychologists food for thought, as, as well, of course, as our viewers. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you. And for those of you watching, Thank you for being with us.